Hey, that's fantastic. Yeah. Order it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so sorry. (laughs) I have no idea what that noise was, but it was amazing. That, that that was our pre-intro sting, is what that was. <laughs> pre-intro sting. <clears throat> Hello, and welcome to Medium Salt, the podcast that seasons nostalgia with a little modern perspective. I am your host, Matt, joined by my good friend and co-host, Kate. This week is a light salt week, where we go over various film topics in a limited amount of time to broaden the way we might think about the media we consume. Today's topic is the three-act structure, what it is and how it kind of is everywhere, and what that means for our entertainment. But first, Kate, how are you? I am super sleepy, but I'm excited to learn about the three-act structure because it is not a thing that I have internalized as deeply as you have in regards to media consumption. Yeah, that's fair. Um, It can be like... It's one of those things that once you start looking into it, you notice it everywhere and like in every piece of media you consume. Um, does it does it enhance your viewing or is it just scaffolding? Uh, both. I think it, it's okay. a little bit of both. Um, so I'm a big fan of how like I'm, I'm a big kind of fan of, of learning and studying how stories are told. I'm not much of a writer myself, but I really enjoy like studying the craft of it. Mm. Um, I find it inherently just super interesting and like understanding what a writer or director is trying to do with their story, I think is really cool. And, and, and story structure is kind of this thing where, where a lot of people, when they're new to like writing or they're new to screenwriting, they're new to filmmaking, um, they kind of look at story structure and act structure and beat structure as like this confining box, which I think is the wrong way to think about it. It's, it's scaffolding for you to hang a story on and it's, and it's really more descriptive than it is prescriptive. Um, mm, okay. You, 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 this like, here's a, here's a series of, of things in storytelling that we know work, you know, understand why they work use them as is or change them up. But when you change it up, you really should understand what you're doing when you're doing that and how that changes the story you're telling. You know, can I ask you a wider question? Yeah, absolutely. Do you think that there is a right way to tell a story? No, but I think there are many wrong ways. Interesting. Okay. I I think there are many right ways to tell, tell a story and there are many wrong ways to tell a story. Um, and ultimately the arbiter is what's entertaining, right? Like what <laughs> resonates. Okay. I think my, the question is largely branching from a thing that you were saying at the beginning, which is that you're not a writer. I've tried to be a writer, but I've tried to be a writer in the way that I research for hours and hours and hours. And then I write for five minutes and give up, you know? <laughs> so, yeah. um, in the way that we are sometimes like with our hobbies where we get a little obsessive about things, but we get stuck in one. Like, I I think this happens to you the same way it happens to me, right? Like I find mm-hmm. something interesting. And so I spend a lot of time researching it and reading about it and trying to figure out the way things work. And then 
I spend so much of my time and energy doing that. I almost talk myself out of it because of things like this, right? Like, oh, well, if you don't do something in a three X structure, it won't work. Or if you don't follow this, whatever, whatever, it won't work. Right. Like I'm always looking Mm -hmm. for some, some sort of golden bullet to help me along with, I don't know the process, but what you're saying is it's really just a tool that you use to craft the story, not a, um, it's a good metaphor. My metaphor brain is sleepy. Yeah. Mm. It's a hammer and not a box, I guess. Right. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's one tool among many. Okay. Um, and, and certainly shouldn't be the thing that confines your story. I think, I think it's something that you should use to enhance your story. Um, kind of like, it's like, it's kind of like music theory in a way. And I think, a, I think a lot of early musicians have the same problem that a lot of early filmmakers do where they think music theory is like, gonna, oh, it's going to restrict my creativity. And that's why all songs sound the same. It's like, no, it's just music theory is just a set of principles that we know this sounds good. This doesn't sound good. Generally. Do you think, right? do you think that knowing about these structures does have a prescriptive effect on people once they learn them though because it's hard to put away sure i think i think it absolutely could um and i think it really depends on the individual and what they're trying to accomplish Mm. so if you look at like like maybe someone who's doing just mass market pulp fiction type stuff Right. right Their goal is primarily to put out work that entertains and Mm -hmm. makes them money. They might not do a whole lot of experimenting with structure. Yeah, because that would turn off their audience. Whereas maybe like the American literature, new age uh, sort of fiction books that come out that you expect to be on bestsellers lists and that you expect rich white people to have in their living rooms. Those are deviating from that norm, probably. Right. Um, but, but, and, and when the writers do that, when they do deviate from the norm, I can guarantee you, they kind of know what they're doing. Like they Mm -hmm. know what they're deviating from and why they're doing it and the effect that that has on their story. Okay. Because it's like, you got to know the rules before you can break them. And I know a Mm -hmm. lot of people are sick of hearing that, but it's like, it helps. If you just, if you just go around breaking rules all willy nilly, you might put out something that's genius, but the next work you put out probably won't be. (laughs) Oh, that's always you know? a dangerous place to be in. So, the second book's the hardest, I think, probably. The book right after your success. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And if it's part of a series, even more so cuz you know, middle it's it's kind of like it's a second act in a larger 3x structure that itself has a 3x structure and like the book before it had its own 3x structure, so you mm-hmm, got your own mm-hmm. kind of, you know, if you're writing with the three X structure and we're going to cover this. I heard you liked three X structures. So I put some three X structures (laughs) in your three X structures. Right. It's interesting because the thing that you said about what the point of the media that you're creating is that's exactly right. Right. Like there are some very, very prescriptive styles of, or genres where if you write outside of something, so uh, the romance genre, for example, like you have beats you have to hit. And if you don't Mm. hit them, your audience is angry. I'm one of the most prolific writers. I can't actually remember her name, but she's written literally hundreds and hundreds of books and they're all romances. And she is one of those middle of the list sort of authors who made a living on it. And, you know, because, you know, you churn out those stories and you change some of the flavor a little bit, but 
if you try to sell a New York Times bestseller, it's supposed to make you think kind of book, but it's formatted as a romance or something like that, it's not going to go over well. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Like, do you want to be challenged when you're reading or do you want the comfort of like a cozy cat mystery <laughs> or whatever? Right. <laughs> yeah. There's, yeah, there's, there's a, it, you have to know what kind of work you're making, right? Mm-hmm. You got to know what, what the book is, what the story is. That kind um, of goes into the com- commercialization of art as well, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. But that's, absolutely. that's diverging a little bit, but yeah, if you're, if you're writing to an audience because you want the audience to want and consume that good, it's different than if you're just trying to tell your own story in whatever way that you want. And there's nothing wrong with that, right? Like if you want to yeah. say, fuck the three act structure, I'm going to write a 17 act structure and it's all going to involve an alien culture and none of the words are going to be in English. Go to town. <laughs> but right, you know, yeah. don't expect Oprah to pick it up. So, And by the same token, you could be a successful writer who writes for mass market and knows how to twist the structure just, just right mm-hmm. to say something profound that, you know, like it will impact your audience and they may not know why, because a lot of people don't understand story structure. They just kind of go with it. They'll right? feel that it's a little but different they'll feel and it. exciting. They'll feel the difference. Yeah. I mean. When did you first become aware of the three act structure? Did you know about it before school? My own kind of relationship with storytelling and structure was one where I always had a hard time understanding it. Like I'd heard of three-act structure. Like obviously we studied some basic story structure stuff in high school, like your basic literature classes and stuff where, you know, you see this this stupid chart with the the pyramid and like rising action climax, do you know what I want? Mm-hmm, like that mm-hmm. whole thing, which I thought was, I still think is just the absolute worst way to represent <laughs> a story structure. And it, it, or at least it was for me because I just, it didn't work for me. It didn't click. I didn't get it. It wasn't until like really college and after college, because in college, what happened is I went to film school and made a lot of really bad movies and I didn't understand why they were bad. Mm-hmm. And so I wanted to understand, I wanted to understand why they were bad. And there were lots of reasons. <laughs> Can I watch one of your really bad movies? I got rid of most of them. I don't know. Some of them <gasps> might still exist somewhere, but like, embarrassingly bad like i showed i showed my roommate my like the final film i ever made like second final film i ever made in film school Mm -hmm. and at the end of it he was speechless was this robert or is this no no this other one i don't want to out anyone (laughs) yeah you know who it is just guess based on our discord channel um (laughs) Speechless in a bad way because this person is never speechless. Yeah. And he, you know, all through film school, he always tried to find something nice to say, even though like that's, if you know him, that's not his personality at all. Um, (laughs) So he's always trying to find something nice to say. But at the end of this movie, he was just absolutely speechless. And then he cracked up laughing. (laughs) Oh, no. (laughs) So bad. And there were so many reasons for it. If you send me one of your bad movies, I will send you a link to the one book that I published as a proof of concept, which is an erotica story about a were alligator. And I am not making this up. I made $10 on Amazon. Hey, $10. Tit for tat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was like, I'm going to So you have a successful structure. history of making media. I sure do. (laughs) Yeah, I have one review. I think it's one star because I changed Mm. one of the characters' names midway through the book because this was 
That project was literally just me saying, okay, I'm going to write something that I do not care about because I need to turn off my inner editor, which is just constantly like, this isn't good enough. This isn't good enough. This isn't art. So I'm going to write the most ridiculous thing I can think of. (laughs) And that was it. (laughs) All right. Yeah. But, you know, not everyone has made $10 from writing a book. So Yeah, that's true. That's very true. Uh, So it was after these terrible, terrible student films. I got really kind of obsessed and like, like frustrated. So I started really diving into story structure and how good stories worked. And I was also kind of like a little flabbergasted that this wasn't something that they taught us in a university, like, you know, film class. Like you should be learning how stories work because you're learning how to, how films work. And it was, that started me down this rabbit hole of like, and we'll cover some of this, but like save the cat hero's journey, you know, Brandon Sanderson's writing course on YouTube that he, he publishes for free from his university course. All kinds of stuff. Dan Wells' seven-step process. Basically, you just pick an arbitrary number, and then you add some sort of noun after it that sounds businessy, and you have your own writing uh, seminar. <laughs> right. Ah, yes. Mm. This is Caitlin's 13 magnum opus stepwise mm-hmm. write things yeah. well, process. <laughs> what's interesting is they all, like a lot of the the story structures that people put out, they all kind of fall under, or a lot of them do based on our modern storytelling conventions. They fall under um, a three act kind of superstructure. Mm-hmm. Um, so like an act is a, it's, it's one of the major divisions of a work, right? So you've got, okay. you know, scenes, a bunch of scenes together, make an act, a bunch of acts, acts together, make a, finished piece what is the Um, what is the overarching purpose of dividing it in this way um it's a so like i said earlier this this kind of thing is more descriptive than prescriptive Mm -hmm. usually you can look at it like some some playwrights and some screenwriters and some storytellers they do use it prescriptively but for Mm -hmm. a large part it's a way to analyze a work and how how that story works and how it kind of fits in with all the other stories we tell kind of another reason that stories get split into acts is convenience for sure. Cause you, you know, you got words, sentences, paragraphs, chapters, books, right? So those yeah. are just all divisions. Humans acts is just breaking things into pieces. Yeah. It helps us understand kind of the greater work, but also like it comes from like the ancient Greek theater tradition, breaking between big acts to show like, Hey, something significant's happened. And now we're going to like address that. Okay. I have a question for my own edification. Yeah. It is are there some works where the division between acts is blurrier than others? Like it's not always super super clear or is it usually very distinct? It it can be. It can be pretty fuzzy depending on who's doing it and but I would say most often especially on anything major, like any any mass market piece of work, anything put out by any of the major studios, anything put out by Disney. <laughs> Disney for sure. Like Big time, but anyway, they're, 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 it's going to be pretty distinct because, like, one okay. of the things is like the biggest, the biggest samples is the difference between Act One and Act Two, which mm-hmm. is like Act One is our establishing, like this is our these are our characters, this is the world thing. they inhabit, and then something major happens that kicks our characters into uh, basically motion into a big adventure, and that and that's the start of Act Two. 
Are there things that just start at act two where you're immediately in it? Or is it just like, that would be a very short act one. A little bit of both. Like you can, you can do it either way. The writer knows what they're doing when they do that. So, but Mm. even if you start like in media res and in in an act two thing, at some point you're going to go back and fill in that backstory. Um, So sometimes act one can come after act two as like a, uh, uh, no, structurally flashback. No, I think structurally, it depends on how you build it. If you look at, I think Pulp Fiction as a movie is is a is a movie that really likes to play with the structure of it mm-hmm. using time. And even though it all takes place kind of out of order and different things are happening, if you look at kind of like the emotional journeys of the characters are going on, it still kind of follows an act one, two, three thing. It's just told in an incon- non-conventional manner. Okay. So the first act is exposition and meeting your characters. The second act is they're getting into trouble. And the third act is, I guess, resolution. Yeah. The third act is like usually. So at the end of act two, you're getting into a lot of trouble. So something even really bigger and darker happens. And usually this is our hero's lowest moment. They're basically on the cusp of failure or they believe they have failed. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's like glimmer of hope. Oh no, I know what to do now. And Dun, da, da. then, yeah, and then they do the, the, the third act climax and denouement. And then everyone's happy or everyone's yeah. sad, depending on what you're watching. <laughs> yeah. Um, so essentially, but like at, the, at, at its most basic, and this is why we see it everywhere. Three act structure is just beginning, middle, end. Well, I think when you when you try to describe it that way, it makes it sound like they all have to be the same length, which I know is not true because you've told no, me it's not true yeah, in the past. No. no, the act one. So usually in our current storytelling convention, act one is usually like in a, let's say, a 10 minutes. Minute, let's say a 90 minute film. Okay. Act one can be 10 to 15 minutes. Act two can be usually um, 60 can be. Yeah, it can be. You know, 60 minutes-ish, and then Act 3 can be about 15, 20 minutes. Um, so Act 3 is basically like, you're that. like, oh yeah, I know that the movie's going to end pretty soon, and I know you really have to go to the bathroom, but you really need to stay and not get yeah. up from your movie theater seat because yeah. you're going to miss the 15 minutes of right. resolution. <laughs> yeah, well, and like, uh, like, for example, in the recent movie we just covered, My Cousin Vinny, mm-hmm. um, Act 3 starts when... Uh, Vinny discovers the key to to win the case. Oh yeah, when and kicks off that whole climax and final scene. Oh, that's a that's a good act three. That was a flurry. Oh yeah, and it bring it, yeah, and it ties everything together. It finishes up mm-hmm. all the little story threads, and it's just oh, so satisfying. so satisfying. <laughs> Jinx. <laughs> I don't. I, this one might come out before our my cousin Vinny co- episode comes out, like either right before or right after. Mm-hmm. But uh, go watch that. Go listen to that episode when that comes out, because that'll be great. And also, it's a great movie. I had never seen it, and I'm so glad that I did. Mm -hmm. Oh, because of our My Cousin Vinny episode, I also made all my friends watch Knives Out. Oh, very good. Yeah. Or the day before. That's awesome. Yeah. It was great, because uh, it was two of my closest friends, and they had never even really heard much about it, so they didn't know what they were getting into, they didn't mm-hmm. know, like, I think the the main description that they said was something like, oh, it's like murdery, right? And I was like, oh, my goodness. I'm so excited <laughs> that you have no idea what's happening. Just sit down. Mm-hmm. I got this. Because <laughs> <laughs> it is such a romp. I love that movie so much. So, 3X structure. 
is basically just that. Yeah. Like a bunch of acts, varying lengths. Act one, you have your characters. Something happens to those characters, kicks them into act two. In act two, they're usually the first half of act two. They're responding to things. And then at the midpoint, something happens to change that. And they start and they go from generally they go from reacting to acting. Mm. Um, so they go from passive to active. And then uh, that usually results in a disaster of some sort, a consequence, right? So they're, they're learning the consequences of this, this new world they're in and they're, they've taken the lesson or something bad happens. So that bad thing then kicks us usually into act three, where the hero kind of like learns their ultimate lesson and resolves the plot. Cool. That's it in a nutshell. And there's a lot of really interesting ways that people have broken down that three act structure. So basically they just break the individual acts into more pieces to describe right. kind of, cause you, you kind yeah. of did that right now when you were like, okay, well they're acting and then they're reacting or they're yeah. reacting and then they're acting rather. Um, yeah. Yeah. So they, they break, they break it down into like story beats, which are kind of okay. like, um, specific yeah. scenes maybe. Right. Yeah. Specific impactful scenes. Okay. Like, um, that change the overall plot of the story. Cause usually there's not just one plot going on in a movie. There's lots of like mini story arcs and character mm -hmm. arcs and blah, blah, blah. And that's where things get interesting where character arcs start to interact with the greater plot of the, of the mm -hmm. story, the best, the best stories intermix them just so wonderfully well that make right. them just really interesting. And I love that. Compelling and that. fun. Yeah. And my cousin Vinny does it really well. <laughs> Does. My um, my next question for you, I guess, is when did the three act story structure become a thing? And is it a thing everywhere? Or is it just something that's really prevalent in Western mm -hmm. media? So three act structure is, as we currently know it, is a very kind of Western media thing. And since one of America's biggest exports is our IP and our storytelling and our movies and stuff, it's kind mm -hmm. of spread everywhere it's mm -hmm. everywhere but every uh, every culture has kind of its own storytelling tradition three act structure is just kind of the mass market one that seems to resonate with a lot of people because it fits into a lot of different boxes did it come from a kind of like european background like greeks so, and romans kind of and no so it's uh, the current iteration of three act structure is very much a modern thing that kind of like got popular in like the 70s is when it really got big, though you can definitely see how it works much earlier than that. Um, it just became, it just kind of almost evolved into like just how That's Americans started making movies and telling something. Gotcha. Like people have tried to like attribute it to like Aristotle and the ancient Greeks, but like they <laughs> really, like Aristotle argued for a much different structure. He liked two acts, he liked 16 acts, he liked. <laughs> That's a and, wide and his, difference. And his stories worked way differently like the way the way you look at a greek play and the way you would look at story structure now is completely different um and even up till like up through up till and through shakespeare it was like we look we liked five acts five acts was Ooh. kind of the standard and then um or i'm sorry four acts and then five acts kind of started with shakespeare and um a, a german playwright named gustav freytag so how many acts are in romeo and juliet i don't know i assume like it depends on how you break it down. Okay. So fair. Shakespeare Shakespeare never wrote down anything about the way he structured his plays or 
like to, if Shakespeare was even one person or a group of people. Yeah, I was just going to say, because yeah. he's secretly 17 different people. Yeah, there, there's not a lot of writing on how he intended his his plays to be interpreted. Hey, you remember that time Shakespeare in Love beat Saving Private Ryan? For best picture. <laughs> Still mad about it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just going to throw that in there. <laughs> yeah. Um, Freytag, who popularized the five-act structure, went back and said Shakespeare, like he analyzed Shakespeare and said, look, five-acts works with Shakespeare. And Shakespeare would have used my structure if he had it. Wow. That's a, that's, that's a bold statement. It's a very bold was, was statement. Was Freytag a white dude? He was an 1800s German dude. So yes, is the answer to my question. Yeah. White dude taking taking credit for other white dude. So. Yeah. So we were talking about other cultures, right? And so you went into oh, five yeah. acts, but what about non-English speaking or non-European yeah. descendant cultures? Yeah, there's actually like a, a ton of interesting um, story structures, dramatic structures based on region, lots largely region. Um, one, one, there's like a four act structure in uh, Asian culture. It's an Asian storytelling tradition. I think it was originally Chinese. The Japanese call it Kishoten Ketsu. And I don't speak Japanese, so I'm probably butchering that. But it's a four act structure that is really interesting because it does something really neat with the third act where the first act is the start. It's the intro. The second act is like a development or some like challenge, right? Like something happens and there's like this rising action and things change. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then the third act usually like they call it's, it's called twist, but sometimes it actually is like, it's usually an unrelated story. Oh, that has nothing to, that doesn't have anything to do with the previous two acts until the fourth act which gives everything context and makes you reinterpret the whole story in an interesting way. Mm, okay. And it's a really neat way to tell a story. And like, I think here's a, here's an example of like a Japanese like poem that can like, where you can kind of see this in work in a very brief way. Um, okay. I think it's called Sanyo Rai. Um, but it's, uh, and I, again, I don't speak Japanese. I'm probably butchering all the names. Okay. Um, so I'm sorry. I'm not intending to be uh, insulting or offensive. <laughs> uh, Daughters of Itoya in Hanmachi of Osaka. This first. The elder daughter is 16 and the younger one is 14. Exact two. Throughout history, daimyos killed the enemy with bows and arrows. <laughs> The daughters of Itoya kill with their eyes. Ooh. That's really cool. It's neat, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So, for some reason, and this may not be 100% accurate, but when you were talking about this, I was immediately thinking of Park Chan-wook, who uh, I love, and mm -hmm. who did The Handmaiden and Old Boy and other things that I probably still need to watch, which... Seems whether or not it's a, a, dis, a direct following of that sort of act structure, I think that there's a lot of playfulness in the way that he presents information and stories. 
mm-hmm. and then uses that twist at the end, right? Oh, yeah, so, yeah. So I could kind of see that being an influence on his work because he's a Korean director, so. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Korean filmmaking tradition is its own, like, really interesting ball of nuts. That should be <laughs> another light salt, I think. Yeah, I I would love to dive into that more because yeah. uh, basically all the Korean media that I have consumed, I've really enjoyed, so. Yeah, and it's and it's starting to really get popular stateside, which mm-hmm. I thought it would have a lot sooner because I remember like in like high school, college, um, being introduced to a lot of that Korean cinema through like Korean friends of ours, mm, yeah, who had like little movie nights and stuff. Mm-hmm, and, like mm-hmm. I always found them really interesting. I never really got into it, but I always thought like it would be popular, especially you know just given the <sighs> just the hunger for new stories that everyone always has. Is interesting, but now it's, it's now it's getting what, big because we've got like Parasite and and oh and what's gosh, it? Parasite Squid was Game so good. is the big Netflix series. Squid Game, yep, you I know? just finished that. So it's interesting what Westerners will find palatable. It's also yeah. interesting. We could do a whole like it's all about this, and probably should, but like the movies that we do that get really popular in Japan or not Japan mm-hmm. in China, like Coco. Coco was huge in China. Oh yeah. Um a lot of a lot of the the values um like the Mexican and Hispanic family values that we displayed in that movie resonated really well with the Chinese audience. So they're great. all about family and taking care of your elders and multi-generational mm-hmm. living yeah. and to support, paint to paint so. with a really broad brush, of course. Yeah, of course. Um it's just one of those things where it's like, all right, this is uh, one of the best examples I can think of of that is actually um, Fiddler on the Roof. So oh, did you Fiddler know that Fiddler – I know, right? Did you know that Fiddler on the Roof has literally been performed every day since its inception somewhere in the world? I read that somewhere and I watched the oh, documentary. Wow. I didn't yeah. know that. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, we could just do a whole Fiddler on the Roof thing. I love that yeah. movie. But yeah, so what's interesting is when like, – the original writer, director, I'm sorry, I'm remembering this from a haze. The point is, the point will still come across, though, which is they started to take Fiddler on the Roof over to Japan. And as they were as they were teaching all the actors and talking about the, the film, the um, Japanese director came up and was like, you wrote this? Um, you know, American audiences liked this? How's that possible? It's so Japanese. So Fiddler yeah. on the Roof is just one of those <laughs> things that transcends so many cultures, which I find very fascinating. So. That's neat. Now I got to yeah. go, I got to do an analysis on Fiddler now, just so I can understand what that director meant by that. That's yeah. so cool. It's a, um, you know, something about, uh, there's like a universality about maybe the old and the new mm-hmm. having friction with each other, right? Old yeah. ways being replaced by newer ways. And then, you mm-hmm. know, he's a, uh, uh, tradition, you know, and whatnot. So, Sto- stories are powerful. Stories are culturally powerful. They're how we uh, package up our our joy and our suffering and remember them. So, mm-hmm. so I know you were telling me that the three act story structure is a very broad thing, but I know you wanted mm-hmm. to talk about some of the people who have taken that into more specific things, right? Oh, so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I can cover that just real quick. Because um, there, these are a few things like that I studied that helped me understand where I was going wrong in film school. 
Um, what do you, where do what do you think the value add of these new systems is? Like what do they what do they provide beyond the three act structure? So I think that all of these things are are being descended from three act structure are not actually different from it. It's just a new mm-hmm. way to interpret the same old thing. Okay. Um, so what that gives me is means you have like we talked earlier about story structure being a hammer. Well, now we've got different kinds of hammers. You know, we've got, um, but they all do roughly the same kind of thing. They they drive a nail in or whatever, but maybe right. this one drives a different kind of nail or what have you. This one is a claw hammer. This one can pull the nail back out. Um, <laughs> I do love so, a good hammer. Yeah. So what's, and then what is also helpful is like for me when I was learning and stuff, this is now um, some ways of framing it didn't make sense to me and other ways of framing it did. So it's just, it makes the story structure more accessible to more people. I think like they're under, like your understanding of it may change based on how it's framed. So having Mm -hmm. multiple ways to frame it can help multiple people. It's kind of like, um, and there's actually like a whole ton of research on this, how this isn't necessarily a thing, but like, you know, people who are visual learners versus people who are audio learners versus the same kind of idea. Right. And I, I read a lot of books on story that made no sense to me. And I thought were bad. Maybe they just worked for different people. And then I read, I found some books that did work for me. And I'm gonna, we're gonna list these in the show notes along with a whole bunch of different wiki articles to help, <laughs> like for people who want to know more. Because this is a very generic overview of what three act structure is. Little confession: we did record this episode once before, and I went way too granular and way too detailed about all of it. So yeah. we're doing this one now. That's like <laughs> Matt loves this topic. Yeah, it's, I can geek out for a while. Yeah, if we don't rein him in, he will just talk for seven yeah. hours about story structure, <laughs> yeah. which is great, but also... Yeah, so so different ways to describe 3X structure. Most popular screenwriting ways, it became huge in screenwriting, and now is kind of like the beat sheet that most screenwriters will use to at least somehow frame their story. Um, it's called Save the Cat, popularized by the author and invented by the author Blake Snyder. Um, and it's it's like it basically breaks down the three act structure in a whole movie into like specific story beats that you want to hit at generally certain times. Why is it called Save the Cat? It's called Save the Cat because uh, like usually in your first act when you're introducing your hero and you want to show that they're a good guy, you have them like save the cat or something. Just something to prove like that. So the, the audience likes this main character and knows he's a good person. You need you need some buy in. You need a signifier yeah. of. Intent. And we can all identify points of in movies like that where we're like, oh, yeah, this guy's the good guy. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, that structure has later gone on and someone adapted it to writing novels. Um, I'm sure there are people who have adapted it to other things. I'm sure there's a playwright version somewhere. Um, <laughs> then kind of like the biggest, the biggest one that is a lot of people kind of know about is Hero's Journey. Popularized mm. by Joseph Campbell in his book *Hero of a Thousand Spaces*. So one of the the, the reason that *Hero's Journey* is is probably most popular, why you may have heard of it, is because it's the it's the main structure that both George and Marshall Lucas really like honed in on for *Star Wars*, like the original *Star Wars* (1977), um, where like George was really obsessed with Joseph Campbell, and like Marshall Lucas is an extremely talented storyteller and editor. Joseph Campbell did Heart of Darkness? No, it's not the Joseph Campbell from Heart of Darkness. It's a different Joseph Campbell, who's a oh, professor. 
<laughs> he's a professor. Um, he's a professor of literature, or he was a professor of literature at uh, Sarah Lawrence College. He works. That's cool. He worked with like mythology and and like he he came up with this idea of like the monomyth, which is like this is the structure that kind of is the superstructure for all human myths and storytelling and blah blah blah. It's faced a that's, lot of criticism for that, but it's still yeah, a really powerful. Yeah, I was like, that's a that's a big claim. <laughs> yeah, it's still a very powerful storytelling tool, and it's and it's one that they were really into for for Star Wars, and so it got really big. So the monomyth basically is the hero's journey, which is like a 17, 17 beats that your story hits, and then like it's a lot of beats. It's a lot. It's so many that a lot of people come after, and then just like distilled those seventeen into like. I think someone did 12, another guy did like eight. Like, <laughs> They're just picking out the ones they like and leaving behind much, the ones they yeah. don't. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. So that's Hero's Journey. It's really good. If you, wanna, if you want a book to go to sleep with, then Hero of a Thousand Faces will oh. put you to sleep. Joseph Campbell apparently um, is the person who started the Follow Your Bliss thing because he was oh, misquoted. Really? Yeah. Huh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It says, most quoted and arguably most misunderstood was his admonition to follow your bliss. That's funny. Interesting. Well, thank you for that. We now have a slew of mugs and yoga mats uh, in your honor. (laughs) (laughs) So a lot of people came up with like these other beat sheets and these other things. They like they descended from Hero's Journey because it was so big with Star Wars and stuff. Another big one is uh, Dan Harmon. Uh, of community and Rick and Morty fame. He has his famous story circle, which is like eight, eight different steps. Like, you know, a hero needs something. He goes to get it. He faces challenges and he adapts and he gets the horn and something bad happens. And like, it's it's something along Mm -hmm. those lines. Um, And then another one, and this is the one that kind of unlocked a lot of the other story structures for my understanding was uh, the author, Dan Wells has a seven step plotting structure. He uses and I'll link, there's a YouTube playlist I'll link um, in the show notes that he goes over his seven steps and how he builds his stories. And like he uses these seven steps with multiple characters and the way his plots come together or the way the, the seven steps with the multiple characters, how they interact and like when they intersect and how they intersect and like to make impactful, dramatic moments. Really cool. There's something about that that unlocked a lot of the things for me and I was able to understand a lot more after that. Cool. And then... Uh, there's there's a there's a ton more. There's a there's a there's a there's as many different story structures as there are stories, I'm sure. <laughs> this is um, a rabbit hole, it sounds like. It is. It absolutely is, and I don't want to get too far into it like I did last time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh last time, just for everyone's knowledge, I uh Matt listed all 17 steps of the hero's journey one at a time. <laughs> You're welcome. It was <laughs> for- <laughs> it was super boring. <laughs> If you want to know it, look it up. Just do that. Yeah. It's, it's better. You'll get the information faster. It was interesting because you care about it so much, but also it's like, oh no, there are 17 of them. Oh. <laughs> and every every new story structure that Matt introduced was a higher number. And I even made the joke in the last recording that it was unsustainable. <laughs> like it we're was, gonna be yeah. here all day. <laughs> Well, let me tell you about my new 64-step storytelling plan. One step for every two minutes. <laughs> You'll be making movies like no tomorrow. Right. All right. Because there All will right. be no tomorrow. We're just going to keep going forever. 
ever. <laughs> and then I think you said, oh, yeah, and the hero with a thousand faces. And I was like, 17 to a thousand? Matt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the hero of a thousand story beats. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, you were going to tell me about Star Trek. Oh, yeah. So another really interesting way to look at Western storytelling, uh, especially another like big Western tradition is not just three act structure, but um, and depending on when the TV show was made, uh, TV shows, old classic TV shows, like like not not the prestige shows like Sopranos and Breaking Bad. And what about Golden Girls? That's probably a very act. Golden heavy. Girls. Yeah. I mean, because, yeah, because sitcom, sitcoms especially follow mm-hmm. this, follow different structure. And that depends on the amount of commercial breaks the show has. Um, generally, like a really good example for this is like classic Star Trek or even my favorite is Star Trek Next Generation oh, to, to see this in, in action. Um, mm-hmm. You see that like right before every commercial breaks, there's like a big twist. That's the end of one act which um, kicks us off into the next act after the commercial break. Oh yeah. Like that's a, that's a very common like experience that I recall, mm-hmm. right? You're like, ah, it's a commercial, but you can't leave. You must listen to yeah. them talk about laundry soap for five minutes before you can see what <laughs> happens to Jean-Luc. Yeah. So like, yeah, like, uh, you, you know, you start your characters somewhere, something happens. Oh no. It's like you start, your brain starts to think of all the implications of that thing. We go to commercial break. And you're sitting mm-hmm. there just waiting. And then we start mm-hmm. the next act is them kind of like, okay, this is how our characters are. This is how they respond to that twist. And this is the new normal that they're adapting to. And then there's yeah. another twist. And then you, get, you know, <laughs> that's just generally yeah. how they did it. And, and Star Trek's great for that because they're, they're retelling a lot of like classic sci-fi stories mm-hmm. in this new Very way. Ar- archetypally so they, heavy Yeah, they don't, they don't. They don't futz with the story structure with that because that's just not what Star Trek is doing. That's not what they're trying to do. That's why Star Trek is comfy and everybody likes it. I wish everybody liked it more. Yeah, I wish they liked it enough not to fuck with it. (laughs) Um, It's interesting, too, like when you go back and you rewatch these things without commercials, you can see everywhere a commercial is supposed to be clear as day. Yep. And then commercial, this would be a commercial. Now, you know, that's your act break. Oh, well, now I have to go back you know, and rewatch. That's, that's my That's why you notice it. That's why you know. Mm-hmm. Also, the fade out's a dead giveaway. <laughs> they make it about as subtle as a firework, so. Yeah. Hey, this is mass market television, okay? <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. Well, all right. Thank you so much for telling me all about 3X Structure. I feel like I've learned a lot. Yeah, yeah. And there's, there's some stuff we didn't even get into, like 2X Structure and 1X Structure. Well, you know, maybe like, we should do a whole episode about deviations from three act structure because that would be fun. Yeah, that might be because I I like the rule breakers. So yeah, yeah, for sure. So yeah, that's that's that is unfortunately all the time for we have today. That's why we set a timer. I have so much to say on this topic, and <laughs> you know, one day we'll come back and get more granular if people are interested. Yeah, we might start doing uh, really long recordings that we just post on the blog for people and not publish as episodes. It will just be Matt listing off (laughs) stronger story structure hacks. That'll be me ranting about things. Yeah. The Hero of a Thousand Faces series, each episode is one of the faces. One face. (laughs) Um, I actually really like studying archetypes. um, And mm -hmm. one of my... Uh, favorite writing books is like a master class of archetype things. So yeah. do that. But anyway, well, hopefully we've tickled some noggins. 
you know, we'll leave. That's a horrible phrase, Matt. <laughs> we'll leave lots of links for people. Yeah. You can scratch that itch if you want to. Um, it's a rabbit hole. It's a fun rabbit hole. Yeah. I live in it. It's the sea ice women. <laughs> he's he's the water rabbit in this metaphor. <laughs> right. Um, if you just if you want some basic books, uh, check out Save the Cat. Check out Save the Cat Writes a Novel. I really like that one. Yeah, Save the Cat is not very long, but it's very informational yeah. and it's very it's a very uh, fun read. Yeah, one of the big ones uh, for screenwriters uh, is uh, obviously Save the Cat, but on top of that, a story by Robert McKee, really important one um, because it's kind of like it was, it was before Save the Cat came out, and it was really important for for defining a lot of the ways we told movies in the '90s and moving onward, mm-hmm. um, and before sure. Uh, and if you really want to go to sleep, check out Joseph Campbell's Hero of a Thousand Faces. Because <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I have it. I have that book. And every time I try to read it. <sighs> yeah. On his Wikipedia, his his face, his picture looks like a professor who would put you to sleep if you were in his yeah, class. For sure. That's what he looks like. That's his archetype. <laughs> <laughs> so. All right. Well, thank you all for joining us this week on Medium Salt. As always, wild away another almost hour. <laughs> as always, you can get more of us at mediumsalt.com or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. Yeah, I played me. I played myself on a Google Home speaker this week. It was very exciting. Do you Google yourself regularly? No, I played it on a speaker. I don't Google myself ever. Also, <laughs> there's a swimmer who has my exact name. And she's oh. who comes up, so thank goodness for her. <laughs> I think there's like a DJ somewhere who has my name. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to support the show, uh, share us with your friends. Like, it really it really means a lot to us. Um, we're also on Twitter, at medium underscore salt. And if you really, really like us, you can help keep us going by buying us a coffee on Ko-Fi. Uh, links are in the show notes. Yeah, we'll use it to save up for new microphones and organs. And just pay for hosting. <laughs> oh. Yeah. Well, we're still working through a birthday present that someone gave me for hosting for a couple of months. So that's good. Hey, that's fantastic. Yeah. All right. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> I have no idea what that noise was, but it was amazing. <laughs> that, that, that was our pre-intro sting is what that was. <laughs> Pre-intro sting. <laughs> <clears throat> Sorry, Matt. Okay, I'm sorry. I'm I'm derailing us constantly. Have a fantastic, bombastic, enthusiastic week. And remember, stay salty. <laughs>